0: It's supposed to be a very silly video of us having lots of fun at the MCA Egg Scramble. But if you want to watch it, you can follow us at Arise Church Denver on Facebook or Instagram, and you can find it on there. So you'll just have that song stuck in your head, and you'll be like wondering the whole message, but it's okay. Um, so, yeah, my name is Sawyer Trapp. I'm an associate pastor here at Rise Church Denver. It's great to be with you this morning, those of you that are gathered here and those watching online as well. Um, just wanted to quick add on to what Matt was saying. Today, right after this service, if you're interested in going, to Estonia or Mexico. If you want to step boldly in outreach to, to save and, and love the lost. If you're, if you're ready to say, hey, I'm ready to serve. I want to go to Estonia or I want to go to Mexico. Right today upstairs after this service, they're having an interest meeting. So even if you're on the fence, even if you're like, maybe I could go. If you're like, man, I don't have enough money to go. That's okay. We're going to get you to go. We're so excited. So today, right after this service, 1230 upstairs, and you can find out more information about our amazing summer global outreach trips. So, with that, I have a question for you. Have you ever spoiled a movie for someone? Be honest, raise your hand, it's going to be honest, especially at church. If You spoiled a movie for someone, okay. I appreciate your honesty, okay. How many of you have had a movie spoiled for you? Same thing. Okay, so there's more of you. So that means you spoilers out there are doing double time. You're putting in extra work on spoiling movies. Now, don't worry, I won't be spoiling any movies, but maybe the movie that was spoiled for you was The Sixth Sense. Maybe it was Shutter Island, maybe it was Interstellar, maybe it was Knives Out. I don't know what the movie was, but we hate that, right? We've waited all this time to see this movie, we've had the preview, and you're sitting in the theater, and then you're accidentally scrolling, maybe on Twitter or Instagram, and then it hits you. that You just spoiled the ending, right? Or somebody comes up to you, have you seen this movie? And then they give it away and you're like, dude, come on, you spoil this movie for me. Actually, so much so, the, the Marvel company went out and they did a whole campaign about the Avengers Endgame movie called Don't Spoil the Endgame. This was a hashtag, this was a whole campaign because they wanted everybody to experience in the theater that movie. That those movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had been building to that point, the end of the Avengers arc, and this was trending on Twitter, it was everywhere, because everybody wanted that unique experience of watching in the theater. Now, I'm not going to spoil the movie, if you haven't seen it, go see it, it's one of my favorites, but we've all experienced that, right? We've either been a spoiler, or the movie has been spoiled for us. And, and this morning, this Palm Sunday in the church calendar, regularly we would be talking about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where everybody's waving the palm branches. But if you've been paying attention or been here over the past couple weeks, we already covered that, right? So if you really want that Palm Sunday message, you can go to risenevercom slash media and come to church. You're already here, which is great. And then you can have double church when you get home. So, But today, we're continuing in the life of Jesus, And actually continuing to the point of Jesus' death today. I know, and the mood just drops, right? But the interesting thing is, is right when I say that, when we start talking about Jesus' death and crucifixion, you already have it in your mind. You're like, okay, yes, Sawyer, that happened. But we know the ending, right? We know the ending. We know what happened. It's already spoiled, Jesus rises from the dead. I'll spoil that one for you. He makes it. He comes back to life. God brings him back from the dead. And so you might be saying there, well, if it's already spoiled, if, if we know God's end game already, right, why are we spending today this entire message talking about Jesus's death and crucifixion? And I think it's because that even on that cross, even in Jesus's final moments, his final day on this earth, prior to his death, Jesus is teaching us something. He's doing ministry. His instruction hasn't stopped. And so as we dive in this morning, as we push down deep into what Jesus is doing, into Jesus' last day, I want us to look for what God's doing, right? Because if you're anything like me, I don't care if you spoil a movie for me. I, if I want to see it, I will go see it. And then it's kind of fun, right? Right? Because you get to see, well, this is where the movie starts. How in the world does it end like that? And we get that opportunity this morning. Because for the people gathered there that day, for the soldiers, for the women weeping, for his disciples, they would have never imagined that that day would turn out the way it did. And so, what we get to do today is we get to see that God had been planning it all along that that worst day for Jesus had a twist ending. And so this morning we've been continuing in our series, we're wrapping up that today in our place being reminded of the things that Jesus went through, what he endured, what he had to go through in his last week of life for you and for me in our place. And so we pick this up in the life of Jesus. Jesus has just been betrayed. He's gone through trial with Pilate, with Herod. He's gone back to Pilate. He's just been chosen to be crucified by the people, and Barabbas has been freed. And after being beaten and flogged, he's now being led up to his execution. And so we pick that up beginning in Luke 23 starting in verse 26. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. If you want to use your smartphone, we're on the UVersion Bible app. If you search Bible, that's the brown Bible app. We're on there. If you click the, the three dash dots at the top right-hand corner and click events, all the notes are in there. You can follow along on there if you'd like. And so we jump in, starting in verse 26. As the soldiers led them away... He, excuse me, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way to the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And so Jesus was meant to carry his cross. This was a common practice when they would transition the prisoner from wherever they were being held to where they were going to be executed. And they would have to carry, not the whole cross, but the cross beam which would have been a piece of wood long enough for however long their arm span was and ranged anywhere between 70 and 100 pounds. And if you've ever watched a depiction of the life of Jesus, you can envision this in your head, right? That as Jesus starts down the road carrying that heavy piece of lumber, his body is breaking down. After being whipped and flogged, and and what we know from the Bible is that Jesus probably hadn't slept for about 24 hours at this point. It never records that Jesus was doing other things. He wasn't sleeping. He, he um, he, He meets with his disciples. They have the Passover meal. They go into the garden. They pray. Judas comes, betrays them. He goes through all those trials and accusation. Jesus probably was tired, exhausted. His body was breaking down. And it gets to a point where Jesus just can't hold that up anymore, and he falls to the ground. And so the soldiers pull this man out, Simon, this foreigner, to carry his cross for him. And already, we see the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, being brought to this low point. His body is failing him. Jesus was a carpenter's son, right? He had loaded lumber his life. This is what he knew. He could have easily lifted that. And yet, his body is failing him. He already can't do what his punishment has outlined. The soldiers were likely yelling at him. Jesus, what are you doing? Get up. You wanted people to follow you? You can't even pick up this cross. And after that, Passed to Simon, and they continue up to the place of Jesus' death. Jumping down to verse 33, it says this When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. If you're a follower of Jesus, we likely know more about crucifixion than most people, but crucifixion was reserved. For the most egregious, awful criminals. This wasn't like if you had stolen a candy bar from the corner store. This is like murder. This is like treason. This is undermining the Roman authority. This wasn't your average common criminal. These were the worst of the worst. And crucifixion was a painful death. Basically, what would happen is you would be bound, or in Jesus' case, nailed to that cross. And it's hard enough to stand in one place with your knees locked. But also, if you put out your arms like this, it gets even harder. Just standing here, if you were to stand here, like in that position for about 10 minutes, you would start to feel out of breath like you had just been running. And it gets even harder than that because what you would need to do to really get a solid breath in is you would have to pull yourself up and get a breath. And so what crucifixion does is that it kills you slowly by exhaustion and you eventually asphyxiate. You're unable to breathe. But beyond the the physical pain that you would experience, crucifixion was also meant to be humiliating. Because what, what the Romans would do is they would, they would crucify people on the entrance to the city. That before you entered a big Roman city like Jerusalem, there would be spots for people to be crucified. And before you enter Roman authority, what would you see? You would see the people who tried to question Roman authority. And you would be like, oh, that's what happens? Praise Rome. I don't want to do that. And so they were used not only as objects, but as painful symbols of Romans' power of authority. They were meant to be a spectacle, they were meant to be looked at. As it records, Jesus was stripped naked, and he is laying bare on a cross, being humiliated slowly and painfully. With what? Two criminals on his side. Men that deserve this death were not recorded what what they did, but this crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Not the innocent, perfect Savior of the world. Not the God of the universe. In fact, a a Roman statesman and, and person that you might have studied in history class, Cicero, had this to say that crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of a cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. Crucifixion was reserved for those against Rome, for foreigners, for the outcast, for the criminal. It wasn't supposed to be Jesus. But even more than that, even though Jesus is struggling to breathe, he's being humiliated and shamed. While he's hanging on that cross, what happens? His disciples and the women he had an impact with. We learn in the other gospels that his mother was there crying and sobbing. But above the sounds of emotion and pain and hurt, you hear the words of those gathered making fun of Jesus. Starting in verse 35, it says this. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, what are you doing up there? Save yourself. The people, the rulers, in the next verse, even the soldiers who were... Doing this execution, that we're killing Jesus, that we're overseeing this, verse 36, it says, "The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself." And Luke records that there was a written notice above him which read, "This is the king of the Jews." You see, it was common practice to put the sentence, the reason why this person was being executed above them, so that the people walking into the city would be like, oh, treason, don't want to do that. Oh, murder, make sure I avoid that. But Jesus has said, this is the king of the Jews. Think about that. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of everything that exists has been severely demoted to the supposed king of a forgotten people group under captivity by Rome. Even in his sentence, even in the plaque above his head, he was being mocked and made fun of. But worse than all that, worse than the people, than the rulers, than the soldiers, than the plaque above his head, what does the next verse say? Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. As we said earlier, these criminals were the worst of the worst, the most egregious, problematic. And even that criminal is like, Wait, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you this Jesus guy that everybody's been talking about, who's done miracles, who's changed people's lives, that people have worshiped? If you're deserving of all that, what are we doing here? Save yourself and, and save us too. He's pleading with him, but he's making fun of him at the same time. And so, beyond the pain and the humiliation instituted by Rome, Most of those that are gathered at Jesus' death are making fun of him, attacking him, and going at the core of his identity. They're shaming him. They're saying, Jesus, this is who you said you were. These are all the things we've done, the things we've heard, and this is where you are? Hanging on a cross like the worst criminal? Prove it. If you're the Messiah, then prove it. This is your chance, Jesus. Show us all. And as time passes, you can almost imagine them going, ah, liar, fake, fraud. You deserve this death. It just gets worse and worse and worse. But that actually brings us to the first lesson of the cross. That Jesus, though not deserving that, endured that for you. That Jesus endured shame so that you wouldn't have to. He went through that so you wouldn't have to live a life of shame. You wouldn't have to be attacked. You wouldn't have to settle for an identity less valuable than who you are. Jesus' identity, his claims, who he was, who he had done, his very core person was being attacked. And that's what shame does, right? It's it's a natural consequence when we we feel guilt when we do something wrong. It happens. If we mess up, we're like, man, I really hurt that person. I feel really bad about it. Or, man, I don't want to know what that person is going to do when they find out. Guilt is actually a good thing because it it prompts us from not doing those things again. We say, hey, I don't want to feel like that again, so I'm going to avoid that. I'm not going to mess up. I'm going to try to be better. Guilt just tells us that we've messed up. But do you know what shame does? Shame tells us that we're messed up. Guilt just tells us that we messed up. It just lets us know. Shame twists that and it says, I'm messed up. That the things that I've done wrong, the mistakes that I made aren't just things that I do, but they're who I am. And that's how they're attacking Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, you claim to be all these things. You claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be the healer. You claim to be the savior. And this is where you are? You must be a liar. You must be a fraud. You must be just lying through your teeth. When none of that was true, right? But Jesus went through that so that we wouldn't have to settle for an identity of shame. An identity maybe put on us by the words that people have spoken against us. By the knives that have been put in our back. Or maybe even by the devil himself. Or perhaps for you, it's not other things that people say. It's that internal monologue in your head that says, hey, you're not good enough. You messed up again. Man, that must be all that you can do. Those conversations that you have in the mirror in the morning that just bring you down. You see, Jesus went through that. He endured that shame when he could have easily gotten off the cross, when he couldn't silence the mouths of his attackers, when he could have healed his body. He did all of that. He endured that shame so that you wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to settle for an identity of shame, for always feeling less than, so that we would know how truly valuable and worthy we really are. That Jesus went through all of that for you and for me. He endured that shame so that you wouldn't have to. I love the way that Philippians puts it. Philippians 2 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible because it sums up the amazing things that Jesus has done for us. It says this, Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was one thing for Jesus to give up his position, his throne in heaven, and be born as a baby in a messy, smelly stable. For him to struggle through life, to experience all that life has to offer. Yes, the good, but also the struggles, the pain. And yet in that, in his life, He showed love to people. He cared for them. He spoke truth to the outcasts. He changed people's lives, and he never once messed up. He never once sinned. And so he deserved heaven. He deserved perfection because he had been perfect, and yet he humbled himself to death on a cross, to pain, to hurt, to humiliation, to shame for you and for me. He endured that shame so that we wouldn't have to. The the 16th century Anglican uh, priest put it this way. Philip Brooks writes, love was compressed for all of history in that lonely figure on the cross who said that he could call down the angels at a moment on a rescue mission, but he chose not to. And why? Because of us. He endured that for you and for me, for the people that we hate, for the people that we love, for the people that we don't even know. He did it for us. He stayed there for you and for me. He endured shame so that we wouldn't have to. I don't know if it's kind of made its way throughout the church. Um, You might have heard rumors or stuff, but Sarah and I have announced that we are due with our second child coming in September, which I know is a huge change, right? We were just sitting in Jesus's death and a hard pivot to celebration, but we got to have a little excitement because this is a heavy message, guys. I know. I know. So, yeah, we're very excited to announce that Lucy will still have a soon have a brother or sister. And so we're really excited about that. Um, Yeah, due in September. But what happens is when you announce that you're having a child, and we saw this with our first child, but now even especially with our second child, is that people start to offer to help, right? They're like, man, I know how that is, or man, you're going to need some help. What can I do for you? Or Sarah, especially with this pregnancy, has been struggling with a lot of morning sickness, and as we shared that with people, people always want to offer, well, you got to eat this, or don't eat this, or make sure that you're doing this, or all these you know wives' tales or whatever it is, of, of helping to try and get rid of that morning sickness. Now, luckily, it is gone, which is awesome. So, But interestingly enough, I was getting my hair cut, and I've been going to the same place for a while, so I kind of know all the people that work there. So we're kind of at a, a lower level or higher level of relationship. So it's like we talk actually about our lives, not just like about the weather or about sports games or whatever. But, And so I, w- I was telling them that you know we were pregnant with our second child, and the person who cuts my hair who I maybe see once a month for like an hour, maybe sometimes more than that. I like to keep my hair looking good. But anyway, I'll just be honest. What she did is instantly in that moment, she says, hey, anything you need, I will even come to your house and clean your house for you. This person that I only see when I'm getting my hair cut wants to come to our house and clean it for us. And that's awesome. And so many of you in the church have offered to do things, and we appreciate that. We didn't have her come clean our house, but it was a nice gesture. And that's what happens, right, is that when we're facing something, difficulty, or even like an exciting challenge, in this new season of life is that God starts to provide. And he has for us, even through the person who cuts my hair, right? And even as Jesus, right, is facing this difficult day, the most difficult and challenging, the worst day of his life on earth, God is still Providing. Because as Jesus is hanging there on that cross, struggling to breathe, being made fun of and humiliated by everyone around him, who steps up to encourage him? Who steps up to defend him? It's the last person that you would expect. Pick it up in verse 40. It says this But the other criminal rebuked him. This picks up. So the other criminal has just said, Hey, save yourself and others. If you're Jesus, what are you doing? And the other criminal on his other side says, what are you doing? He says this, don't you fear God? Since we are under the same sentence, we have been punished justly for what, or we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even in Jesus' darkest hour, highest struggle, at the pinnacle of his pain, God shows up. So bonus point, if no matter what you're going through, keep on praying. God's going to show up. And it might be in through the last person that you expect. This criminal, this man who had given his life, we don't know what he did, but we know that he did something wrong, something bad. Maybe he threatened the Roman authority, whatever it is. He even says himself, "I deserve this. This is what I should be getting as a punishment for my crimes." But you, you Jesus, What does he say? This man has done nothing wrong. When everyone else around him, the criminal, the soldiers, the people, or the rulers are bringing Jesus down, he starts building him up. You've done nothing wrong, Jesus. We deserve this. You don't. And over and over again through the Gospel of Luke, Luke wants to point out the many people from various instances, whether it's the criminal, whether it's Pilate, whether it's Herod, whether it's disciples, that Jesus did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve the cross. And yet, there he hangs. But even more than that, this, this man isn't meant to be an encouragement to Jesus. He's actually having a profession of faith. In the very last moments of his life, as he himself is struggling to breathe, he chooses to step up for Jesus, to defend him. But even more than that, look at the next verse verse 42. Then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Why does he say that? Because he knows this moment isn't the end. He's hinting at the spoiler already, right? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I know I've messed up. I know I deserve this punishment, but I know that you have something more for my life, even these last few moments of it, than I could ever do myself. Isn't that what we want when we're going through problems? When we're experiencing the worst days of our lives, for God to remember us? And in this profession of faith, in an announcement that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet there he stands, there he hangs, It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is going to last past this moment. He's come to faith. And we see that in the way that Jesus responds. He answers him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This man has gotten it. He's seen through the pain, the shame, and the humiliation, and he can see what God is doing. That God is working even in the worst day of Jesus' life. And yet, there he stands, condemned, being executed for his crimes. The perfect, spotless lamb. God in the flesh is now being executed for crimes he didn't commit. He's condemned. But that brings us to our second lesson that Jesus was condemned so that we could be set free that we could be set free. And yet so many of us, even in this room or watching the stream or people that we know feel like God is just waiting for us to mess up. As if God is standing in heaven and just watching us down on earth being like, Sawyer, don't do that. Oh, don't do, oh, and there it is, he did it. Well, time to bring down the hammer, right? And it's easy to laugh at that, but a lot of us live that way. We operate out of a relationship with God that is transactional, that if we mess up, God's not going to bless us or God's going to forget about us. That God is just waiting to bring down the hammer, the punishment, the spanking, whatever it is. And in this moment, as Jesus hangs there for crimes he didn't commit, we see the perfect love and the perfect justice of God in perfect harmony. Because yes, God is, hates sin. It separates us from God. God is perfect. God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so when we mess up, when we fall short of even our own standards, that causes separation between us and God. That's why God is just. He holds us and all people and creation to the standards that flow out of who he is. But you know what else God also does? Is he didn't leave us that way. From the moment of that sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took a bite of that forbidden fruit, God was executing and bringing about his plan of redemption. His plan of salvation. He sent his own son to live the life that we couldn't and to die the death in our place that he didn't deserve. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you do not stand in condemnation. You do not stand accused. God is not waiting to bring down the hammer on you when you mess up. God is for you. God is on your side, and it is seen in Jesus, the perfect, innocent lamb, hanging on the cross in our place. It says so in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, there is no condemnation. Say it with me. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through who? Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We no longer stand under condemnation. God is not out to get us. God is for us, and he shows it in Jesus hanging on that cross for you and for me. He underwent that condemnation so that we could be set free. And as Jesus is hanging there, struggling to breathe, pulling himself up to get breaths, Luke records that about three hours later, that Jesus breathes his last. We Pick it up in verse 46. Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Luke records that in that moment, the sky turns dark. The veil separating the Holy of Holies and the temple was torn. The ground shakes. Because, friends, that moment right there is the most important moment in all of history. It's the pinnacle, it's the peak, it's where everything changed that Jesus, though not deserving that shame and humiliation or condemnation, did it all and stayed on that cross to the point of death, putting to death our sin and making a way for the separation from between us and God to be reconciled. And he dies. And he's taken off the cross and he's put in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And it's recorded that Joseph sees and the women see that Jesus is put in that tomb and the stone is rolled shut. And you have to imagine what that felt like. This man that had changed your life. This man that some of them have been following for three plus years now. The man that had done miracles and spoke with authority and done signs and wonder is now dead. Laying in a tomb. And they have no indication that anything is about to change but it's actually in that moment that we're brought to the third lesson of the cross, that Jesus died so that you and I could live, that Jesus died, Jesus gave up his life, that Jesus came down from heaven, struggled through life, loved people, cared for people, was perfect, and even though he didn't deserve it, he hung on that cross for you and for me so that we could live. Because the truth is, the secret, the spoiler is this. That Jesus' worst day was actually your best. That the worst day in the life of Jesus, the uh, the day that he didn't want to be there, the day that he struggled, the day that he was shamed, humiliated, tossed aside, rejected, the day that he died was your best day because it's in that moment where you are no longer separated from God. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus was who he said he was, did what he said he did and died in your place, if you believe that, if you also believe that three three days later that he was raised from the dead, then you know what? It is your best day. That day in history, that one day, about 2000 plus years ago, changed everything. It showed us that we don't need to live with shame anymore. That we don't stand condemned and we are now set free to live the life that God wants us to live. It's your best day. It's my best day. It's the best day of anyone who believes. But maybe you're sitting in this room and you're listening to my voice. And maybe for the first time you see the lengths that God went through that God gave his son to die on a cross for you. Maybe it's time to make today your best day. Maybe if you came to church this morning and you're like pulling yourself out of bed and you've had that conversation with yourself in the mirror this morning, that says you're not good enough, that says you don't measure up, that says that you're a failure, then it's time to make today your best day because the cross of Jesus shows us how truly valuable and worthy that we really are. Leave the identity of shame in this room, leave it on the stream, leave it whenever you watch this and you know what, pick up the identity as of a child of God. Maybe you do feel like that God is out to get you, that the pain in your life is just God responding to your sin and your mistakes, that God is bringing down the proverbial hammer friends, see the justice and love of Jesus in perfect harmony on the cross. That God didn't leave us where we are, but came down to us to die in our place. And maybe as you think about this, as we think about Easter next week, God is starting to bring somebody onto your heart of saying, man, I had my best day and my best days are ahead of me, but this person is struggling right now. They don't know where they're headed. They don't know their purpose. They're wrestling with these really difficult things. The cross of Jesus shows them that their best day is ahead of them. That maybe Easter could be their best day. But that may only happen if we are bold enough to take this step and say, hey, here's this card I got at church. I don't know if you read it, but I'd love for you to join us. Maybe it's being bold enough to invite that person who's kind of been on the fence in your life and saying, hey, I would love to spend Easter with you. We can go to church and then I'm buying for brunch afterwards, whatever it is. We have the opportunity, if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you're not, to make some best days this Easter because God's plan of redemption didn't end with Jesus. It started there. Jesus was raised three days later. That's what we celebrate on Easter. And now God calls all of us who are followers of Jesus to keep spreading his kingdom, keep building the mission, to keep having more best days. And if you are still on this earth, if you are still listening to my voice, then you have the opportunity to change somebody's life forever. Because spoiler alert, our best days are ahead of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us where we were, lost in our sin and our pain and our hurt, separated from you, but God, you came running to us. You sent Jesus down to live the life that we couldn't, to die the death in our place. And God, you raised him three days later showing that you are bigger, that you are stronger than sin, than death, and the devil. God, I thank you for the wonderful reminder of the great lengths that you will go to to show your love for us. God, I thank you for the cross, for Jesus, and that Jesus's worst day is truly our best. God, I pray over the the hearts and the minds, even now, the people that you're putting in in our heads, that we would be bold enough to invite them this Easter. God, that we will see more and more best days in the days to come. Holy Spirit, work in us and through us. Draw people to yourself so they can experience the hope, the joy, the new identity found in you and you alone that all of us would experience our best day and the best life that you have for us. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.